Andrew. I'm the preaching pastor for Anchor Church. Uh, we are about to head into Genesis 1 through 11 for the fall. Uh, after that, it will be Christmas, so we'll do Christmas preaching, and then we'll get into some sections from Isaiah and Ephesians if you're reading all the way ahead. Uh, but today we begin our study in Genesis. Uh, if you would join me in prayer. King Jesus, this is your day. We belong to you. You have made us. You have made absolutely everything. Help us as we approach this particular text. Help us to be faithful to your word. There are cracks in the foundation of people who call themselves your church who do not take your word seriously, who do not approach it with the aim to be as faithful to your text, your delivered, the words you have for us as possible. So as, you, as we approach this text, the first chapter, the first book of the book, help me to preach it faithfully, help us to take it seriously. And Jesus, in all these things, in particular our adventures both in the Old Testament and even in the, the letters, and yes, in the Gospels, that we would see the Gospel in these things, that we would see the good news of your glory and your salvation for our sins through your Son, Heavenly Father. Bless this time, lead us, guide us, and help us to be in awe of your glory and live enjoying that with the whole of our being. God, we love you and pray these things in your name, Jesus Christ, amen. Uh, so here we are in Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 1, which, if you have a Bible in your hands, is at the very beginning. Uh, so why Genesis 1 through 11? Uh, well, to be honest with you, Gen all of Genesis is very long to preach, uh, and we would be in all of Genesis for several years, and it did not seem prudent to be in all of Genesis, though it is a worthwhile cause for several years, but rather to take a look at these first 11 chapters, uh, leading from the creation of everything to uh, Abraham, or Abram, in there in chapter 12 of Genesis. Uh, these 11 chapters are some of the most dif disputed, argued, uh, discounted, and dismissed in all of the Bible. Uh, and these 11 chapters are what help us understand absolutely everything, and in fact, form what we'll call our worldview or our narrative identity, uh, or, or who we understand ourselves to be in history. The thing you must understand about this idea, whether we call it worldview or narrative identity or whatever it might be, is that absolutely everyone has one, and there's no such thing as a neutral one. There's no such thing as coming into anything completely neutral, completely objective, without presuppositions, without assumptions. That is not how God has built there's my presupposition. That is not how God has built human beings to be. And every worldview in and of itself is subversive of other worldviews. Every worldview displaces other worldviews. Now, the Christian worldview is about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's our hope that people are ultimately rescued. I'm, I'm going to say it. Rescued. And, and if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you're checking this out, I hope you get rescued to understand and see who God is and that Jesus will save us from our sins and give us life and life with God forever. But we must understand that all worldviews are subversive. It's not that we come with an agenda and someone else comes objective, right? The Christian worldview at the core and at the heart of the Christian worldview is the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. It, at, the, at the base of our lens for understanding absolutely everything in our life is the reality that we are sinful people who God, in, in, in His grace and mercy, came to forgive us for us and to save us by sending His Son to live the life we're supposed to live, to die on the cross, to cleanse us from our sins, and to save us. And there's nothing we can do to bring to the table. There's nothing we can offer God that He would save us. But that this salvation is a free gift that comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the life we have in God through Jesus. And that God, Jesus Christ, has died so that we can live. And we can live with God now and forever. This is at the core of what we understand to be how the universe exists. And this reality of the gospel is framed in what we'll call redemptive history. 
and we, we abbreviate, you'll hear it abbreviated by different people in a number of ways. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. I like creation, fall, promise, because if you go creation, fall, redemption, restoration, you actually skip like 78% of the Bible. Um, so I like creation, fall, promise, because all of the Old Testament is promising Jesus is coming. Messiah is coming, and he's going to put everything back. He's going to wipe every tear from every eye. Let's not forget how much of the Bible we have and is ours and is Christian scripture. Creation, fall, promise, redemption. That's the cross. That's the resurrection. Recreation. So Genesis 1 is so important for a number of reasons, including seeing what that recreation is actually going to look like when he puts everything back the way it's supposed to be. Yeah. The book of Revelation is awesome. Revelation uh, 21, 22, 20, is, it shows this beautiful picture of the new heavens and the new earth. And we can learn a lot about that new heavens and new earth right here in chapter 1. Right here in chapter 1. And in that frame, and particularly as we look at Genesis 1 through 11, as we kind of dig into the bigger picture, creation, fall, those two epics happen in the first three chapters. God made absolutely everything good. We broke it. Human beings, Adam and Eve, broken. That's why we need the promise and the promise that God's going to fix it, the redemption. So here's our approach to Genesis 1. I have a problem. Uh, it's been observed by one uh, really great Old Testament scholar that when you look at Genesis compared to other, the fancy word is cosmogony, but other origin stories, other other stories from around the world, and specifically we'll look at ones from the ancient Near East because they bear at times a resemblance to the Genesis account. They're very similar, but here's the problem with Genesis 1, if it's a problem. So take that carefully. It's not as interesting as the other ones. The other ones, it's always like, there's some God, like the old flood stories, there's some God and the people are keeping him up and so he's going to send a flood because he wants to deal with the people and some other God takes the humans and hides them in a cube and then sends them off and it's this, this just adventure, right? Well, Genesis 6 and 7 is that God is going to judge sin because he's holy, right, just, and perfect and he has a rescue plan for people that foreshadows Jesus ultimately, right? And so when we look at Genesis 1, it isn't one of these cosmogonies with Inky and these other dudes and this epic and the demigods and this other thing. It's honestly almost so straightforward as I was looking and getting ready for the text. I'm like, how do you preach this thing? Because what God's going to do is show us that he's holy, glorious, sovereign creator of all things, unmatched in all of existence, outside of existence, outside of time, outside of physics, outside of creation, and honestly, some of what we're left with with Genesis 1 is just a worship. I, I'll read it, and we'll go through it, and we'll take pieces apart, as we always do as we preach line by line through the Bible. But when we get to day three, and we hear, and that God created the, the, the plants to do the plant thing, we say, okay. And then there were plants, and God said it was good. And it's good. Moving on. But there are four things we will address, which I think are so important. We're going to deal with what I call the PBS problem. It's Genesis as it relates to sort of the idea of myth and mythology. Uh, and you'll see what I mean by PBS problem maybe when we get there. We, we also need to look at how Genesis relates to the New Testament. Because if we believe the New Testament to be inerrant, infallible word of God, we must take Genesis 1 very seriously. If we believe Jesus and what he has said, we must take the, the Old Testament, and particularly Genesis 1 through 11. Well, the whole thing, but yes, Genesis 1 through 11, seriously. Uh, in addition to that, we need to see how Genesis works with the gospel, so Genesis and the gospel, and then ultimately Genesis and you, or Genesis and us, what this actually means, this text means for us uh, as we look at our lives. So here we go. Not really boring and not really a problem, but Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is, this is so potent that the the word for this in the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament in Hebrew is barashit, which just means in beginning or in the beginning. That is the title for this book in the Hebrew Bible. In the beginning, God, so there's a beginning. That means God made time. Augustine, the, uh, the great, great church father, melted pretty much everyone's faces when he came up with this idea, when he's trying to deal with God's sovereignty and foreknowledge in all things, it's in, it's in Confessions. I think it's in chapter 7 of Confessions. Augustine proposes that God's outside of time and God made time. And everyone says, 
What did you just say, Augustine? Time didn't always exist. And everyone says, what? And you try and think about that. And there was a time when time didn't exist, and you're just as confused as they were. Now, this is also why, and quantum physicists don't like this, by the way, this is why some people have said that Augustine's really the father of quantum physics. Because time's created. In the beginning, God made a beginning. Well, where was God? God always was. And this is the great thing that happens in Exodus 3. Moses, before God, says, Who shall I say sent me? Tell him I am sent you. God, that's a present tense. Uh, what? what are you talking about? I am. This is why Jesus says, Before Abraham was, I am. God always was and always will be. This is why in, in the book of Revelation, he takes the name, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the beginning and the end. I am everything. Right? This is what God says. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, heavens and earth are an absolutely right way to handle these words, uh, but don't let them be so lofty that you miss that heavens and earth can also mean sky and land, right? Sky and land. God made the heavens and the earth. He made the land and he made sky or the sky because they didn't exist before him. I mean, this is the only, honestly, this is the exegesis here. Where I have to stop and say, that means there was no sky. Right? God made the heavens and the earth. He made the earth and the sky. And, and, and from here on out, we'll see this complementary relationship through these days. Watch them as we go. He made the heavens and the earth. He makes the land and the sea. He makes the stars. He makes the sun. He makes these complementary relationships that land at the apex of creation with the man and the woman. It's amazing. The literary structure of what's happening and being revealed here is, is, is fascinating. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was out without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God... What? Was that the Trinity? It was. Yes. The Ruach Elohim. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, remember, when God says, it happens. And God said in the imperative. In the imperative? Yeah, the imperative. He is telling stuff what to do from the get-go. In the imperative, God said, let there be. It's imperative. He's telling things what to do and things are happening. So when you hear that, don't just, I mean, this is sort of the language breakdown. It, it's a little bit, it's strong. Let there be. God is the boss. He is the king. Let there be light. I was interacting with another pastor who's preaching this, this same text right now. And he said, hey, sent me an email. He said, hey, do you think, because we're going to get to day four when he makes the sun and the stars. And he said, hey, do you think God made the sun and just like didn't turn it on there or something? And I, and I responded, no, I think he made light there. I don't think light existed prior to him calling it into existence. Creation without light? Let there be light. Boom. Right there. And by the way, what do we hear in uh, the book of Revelation? No sun, no moon. So Jesus is the only light that's needed. This isn't the only time in history that apparently the sun isn't necessary for there to be light. Moving on. And God saw that the light was good. By the way, when God says something's good, it's good. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and he called the darkness night. And there was evening, and there was morning. The first day. Boom. And God said, let there, let there be an expanse, again, commanding, in the midst of the waters. And let us separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse, and separated the waters from under the expanse, and from the waters that were above the expanse, and... It was so. And God called the expanse heaven, or again, sky. Right? I, I don't think he's creating, you know, if we, we, we try and find that place to talk about the dwelling place of the God of the universe, the heavens. Uh, the, the cosmonaut, that's a Russian, pardon me, a USS, a Soviet from the USSR. Uh, the, the cosmonauts get out into space and they say, we looked for God, but we didn't find him here. 
That's because that's not what it says in Genesis, sir. Pardon me, comrade. Um, that's not what it says. It's not saying that he's creating the dimension in which we run out of words. Dimension, you're not going to find that one in the Bible. But we're not, you can't go into space and find the place that he dwells because he's God. Not surprised when I look at this text that the cosmonauts did not find him in the sky. Even from here. And he called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning. The second day. This is also why, uh, even to this day, in the, in the synagogues and whatnot, uh, Sabbath begins Friday night and goes into Saturday, evening and then morning. So that's why they do evening. So if you ever wonder why, that's why. That's the tradition, that, that, that evening is when the day starts. Anyways. And God said, let the waters under the heaven be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. There it is. I have sound effects in my head for a lot of this. I don't know why that is. But when I read it, there's just sound effects everywhere. And God made the expanse separate. Uh, we did that. Uh, and, and God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth. And the waters uh, that were gathered together, he called seas. God saw that it was good. We have this image in our mind. Maybe it's from that, I think it's the third or second Star Wars movie, the old ones, uh, where the Genesis Project, I don't know if you saw this, where the where things are forming and it's dark and it's chaotic. And even these, these words, like there's darkness and there's, there's this sense of formlessness and chaos, that's not a surprise that it's there. But we have this sense that, we can have this sense, I think, from what we've inherited, to think of this as being all out of control and chaos and horrible and hard. God's calling it good. And God's ruling and moving in all of it. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed. Fruit trees bearing fruit, uh, which is their seed. Now, do you see the order of God? Apple trees don't make peach trees. Bean plants don't make corn. There's, there's an order in here. This is, we try and say that these people are, we have a, what, what has been called and was really popularized by C.S. Lewis, a chronological snobbery where we think of ourselves as understanding things so much better uh, than these people who lived so much earlier than us. I think this is why we get stuff like, one of my favorites is in Luke chapter 4, uh, when Jesus is being lifted up by the crowd. Uh, Luke records uh, that he's opened up the scroll and he's basically said he's Messiah, and they're like, get him! And they pick him up and they're about to throw him off a cliff. And he just says this in Luke. And passing through their midst, he went on his way. But Luke, how'd he do it? doesn't know. Because when he asked somebody who was there, he says, what happened? Well, we hoisted him up like a Nirvana show, and we're going to throw him off the cliff, and the next thing I know, he was gone. <laughs> well, what happened? I don't know. We we're going to throw him off the cliff, and passing through our midst, he went on his way. Mm -hmm. Because guess how you would describe that if you saw that? Mm -hmm. It was weird. <laughs> And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs, for seasons. So he's putting the calendar into play. And, and for days and years. And, and, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so, and God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. It's the sun and the moon. And the stars. And God said, and God set them in the expanse in the heavens to give light to the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the, uh, from the darkness. And God saw the light was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. 20. See my problem exegetically here? So God made the sun and the moon, and he put the stars into play. And, yep, that's God for you, being king of everything again. And God said, let the waters swarm with living creatures, 
You know, birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which uh, the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. There's God's order at work again. And God saw that it was good and God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. There was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts on the earth according to its kind. And it was so. And God made beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, now hear this. This is one of the most debated pronouns in biblical interpretation. Because if it's so, just like the, the Spirit of God in verse 1, we have evidence of the Trinity very, very, very emphatically. What do we hear? And God said, let us Make man for Adam. Let us make man in our image. Okay, so I, we will be we will be talking about the creation of human beings in depth more next week. So we're not going to spend a lot of time on this Imago Dei piece, the, Im the image of God piece, because it so pertains to chapter two. Okay, so we'll we'll dig in more, but but you need to hear this, right? I mean, this shapes our worldview. This shapes about what we think about absolutely everything a human person is. This shapes our arguments about human dignity. This shapes our argument about the sanctity of life in all of its human form. This shapes what we understand about gender, what we understand about sexual, everything. Sexuality, everything happens right here. If, if someone says, well, you know what? The Bible doesn't say anything about any of those things. Wrong. Wrong. Let's talk about worldview. Let's talk about what we understand about how the world works and who you are as a human being, let alone a Christian. It's informed right here. Why is it that we care about getting diapers to solid ground because people don't have them? This text. Why is it we want to invite every person in to hear the gospel preached? This text. This text. Why is it that we care about all of these things? This text. Let the earth, oh, pardon me, not that one, this one. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Why? This is why we feel what we feel about racism. This is why racism is a sin. Every human being on planet earth is made in the image of God and is worthy of dignity and respect as such. I mean, we could go on, and I mean, we really could go on. You could just apply this again and again and again and again. And, and we'll talk a little bit about how we are affected when we let another worldview come in. But we need to understand, this is where we stand as Christians. This is what the Bible says about these things. This is why we need to care about other human beings. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. This is part of, I think, the image of God. God has just made and named and we as human beings get to be creative and move and exert this dominion over God's creation. Listen to this. This is the apex of that complementary piece. This is, this is why, I mean, this is we saw this in 1 Peter, and we'll see it again in Genesis quite a bit. This is, this is sort of one of those places where our worldview is different. We don't think that equality necessita necessitates homogeny. To be equal is not to be the same. Because listen, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Right? This is, 
is why we care about women's issues and men's issues. This is why we care about people issues, right? Because God made them complementary, like the land and the sea, like the, like the sun and the stars, complementary. But it's a good thing, by the way, that the land and the sea are different, right? We want the land and the sea to be different. Uh, you know, the New Yorker's got stuff about tsunamis and earthquakes. We want the land and the sea to be different here in Seattle. Maybe I just was the only one that read that article. Don't read it. You don't need it. It'll scare you. Just be prepared, have your kit, and move on with your life. <laughs> so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. And we're going to spend, if, if you have, if you, I would even say if you have questions about this text and it working out, feel free to email me and stuff, because we're, we're going to dig really into this imago, this image of God piece, and we're going to dig deeply into this uh, next week. Um, but there it is. So God, God creates in this apex, this apex. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created male and female. He created them. This is a countercultural worldview on every front, and it has been for thousands of years. Now listen to this. This is good stuff here. And God blessed them. Well, I read this, but it's good stuff, right? God, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds and heavens and every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. This will be important for us in chapter 3. Uh, you shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green, given you every green plant for food. Note stuff. The fancy word here is verbal fiat. He says it, it happens. He says it, it goes. He is the king. We're, we're supposed to leave this text not confused about Inky or the Enuma Elish or any of this stuff. We're supposed to read this text and stand in awe of the God who made absolutely everything. This, this text, I mean, I, <laughs> I found myself almost late because I was actually so excited about that second song. How much I needed for my soul to hear and sing with you that second song we were singing. And realized, oh, now it's time to actually go do that other thing and not just sing, but, but to do the thing. But, but to say that God says these things. This is who God has said you are. This is what God said he's doing. God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Uh, God has said you are forgiven. God has said, I will remember your sins and lawless deeds no more. All this is through Jesus. But the reason he can say any of these things is rooted here in Genesis 1. The fact that he can save your soul through his son, Jesus Christ. The fact that he can forgive you for your sins flows from the fact that he's the king of absolutely everything. The reason you need not fear, the reason we can cast our anxieties upon the Lord, the reason we go to him in prayer is all right here in one. If he's not God who can make everything and do anything and do anything by his will, why would you ask him to make anything or do anything by his will? You want to be grounded in why your prayers count. Well, we trust him that he said he's listening. We trust him that we have full access to the person of Jesus. Yes, these are awesome and wonderful truths that we need to cling to, and I'm not even discounting those. I'm just saying, and the reason we know he can move. God, please. God, please. So, now this next piece is so crucial, again, to that narrative identity, to where we find ourselves in history, where we understand about ourselves and the world. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. This, this is different. This is different. We believe that God made everything good. Check out all the other ancient and Eastern cosmologies, origin stories. And they're all based around chaos and mess. And this one stood out amongst its neighbors that God made everything good. You know, we live in a world when we see the world's view that, that there's just this mechanistic function that brought us to be here because of random sequences and this building and this thing and I'm speaking because of some random sequencing of events 
All that comes out of chaos and survival of the fittest and dog eat dog and this and that and chaos and destruction. That is not the story here. The story here is that God made everything new. This is the history of the people of God. Now, for the first time in the history of Anchor Church, I managed to get through a whole chapter and I'm going into the next chapter. That might be a stretch. But the last time I can remember, we got through one chapter, we're going into the next. Here we go. And then we'll kind of unpack some of these bigger ideas. Thus, the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work and all he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all of his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Here's a beautiful thing when you actually take a day off. I know it's Seattle and we're busy and we work like 70 hours a week and when we're not working, we're checking our work email and I, I get it, I know. You're sleeping like four hours a day. That's what I do, I've got six. Six? Yeah, it doesn't matter. It's a holy thing to rest. Because when we rest, when we sleep, when we take a day off, what we're saying is, God, you're the king. You're the maker of everything. That pause in our life. And it, and, and we're New Testament Christians, so no, it doesn't have to be from Friday evening to Saturday morning. That's, that's not a problem. But when we pause, when you, when you lay in your bed at night and you, and you trust God to keep you breathing in your sleep, <laughs> you're acknowledging he's the king of everything. And he's God. And I know this sometimes. You've got to put your hand to the plow and you've got to get to work. But if we're never resting, if we're never pausing, we need to stop and look at that. Okay, so I told you we'd talk about four things, and we'll talk about them. Genesis and myth, Genesis in the New Testament, Genesis is the gospel, and Genesis is the myth. Okay, so the myth issue is huge. Because to a modern reader, they hear this and they say, that sounds silly. It's not how it works. And there's, there's two issues here. There's, there's one, which you may or may not be privy to. Uh, we'll call it the biblical studies problem. Uh, and that's the problem that, honestly, every uh, Old Testament department, not, I shouldn't say every, that's wrong. Many, 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 many Old Testament departments. If you're, if you're doing a PhD in Old Testament at Johns Hopkins University and they find out you believe that God made the earth in six days and rested on the seventh day, you're, they're going to get rid of you. You're gone. I know people who have been to these schools. I know people who have gotten their PhDs at these schools and they find out they even begin to smell. Wait a minute, are you an inerrantist? Are you an evangelical Bible-believing Christian? Well, you better keep your mouth shut or we'll get rid of you. I had guys heard those exact words. We will get rid of you if you bring any of that in here. You believe the Bible? Well, we don't like you. Right? So there's a biblical studies problem. And that biblical studies problem will say, well, and we're going to have to hit this a few times. And the reason why I'm going to hit this is because we live in Seattle. I've found this to be the case for my own personal evangelism with my neighbors. I, I've found it to be the case for sure from people coming out of UW, SPU, or Seattle University. Uh, I found it to be the case if you just watch Discovery Channel. PBS, right? Like, this is not ivory tower stuff. Like, you get PBS on your telephone in 2015, right? That's not, that's not far reaching. That's not far off. And, and it essentially says, well, you know what? If you look at this Genesis thing, particularly Genesis 1 through 11, and you compare it against the, uh, the Inky story, the Enuma Elish, or, or any of these other uh, ancient Near Eastern. So when I say ancient Near Eastern, it's usually a breed, the Anessa breed, A-N-E means that region in around Israel and the surrounding region there. And they're going to say, look, look, these guys have a flood story. And so do these guys. They're just the same. And look, these guys wrote it down first. Well, first of all, the reason they're saying that is because when they wrote it down, it was on cuneiform. You know what cuneiform is? It's a really another fancy word. It means they wrote it with a toothpick and clay. Guess what happens when you're writing on a toothpick and clay in the desert? It lasts. That's what happens to it. It lasts a very long time. And, and honestly, I don't have a problem with the idea that some of this cuneiform is written prior to when Moses, who I believe wrote the book, wasn't a Christian, I believe Jesus. I said that out loud. Um, yeah, Moses, even if we go with the, the earliest Exodus date, that's 14 and a half B.C., the cuneiform's before that. I'm okay there. Why? Jesus identified with Moses. So does Jesus. 
Now, here's the thing. When you start looking at this stuff, and people start, there's a whole school of thinking in there. Where I said, well, look, the, the stories are different, and, and Genesis 1-2 don't match up. And, and one, he's called Elohim, and the other, he's called Hashem. Who, who, what's it going to be? And you say, well, it's interesting, because in Genesis 1, God's just making everything as this king. God does this, God does this, and then the Lord, you'll see it in the ESV, or, or I think the Holman might actually use the, the actual proper name, Yahweh, there. But if you're in, or the NASB, or, or the King Jimmy, they're all going to say, the Lord did this, and the Lord did this. They say, look, different names, different, different guys must have written that. Because I don't know if you've ever written anything, but I write absolutely every email in complete uniformity all the time. And every paragraph I write in my whole life, I write with complete, succinct uniformity, he said sarcastically. I always call my wife the same name all the time. I always call her by Mrs. Pack. Mrs. Pack, would you please pass the mashed potatoes? I don't, because that's absurd. Now, what's interesting is, is as God's creating by verbal fiat, by his large command, and God did this, and God did this, and God did this, then we switch to Genesis 2, and we hear about God taking from the dirt, and God creating Adam from the dirt and breathing life in, and his proper name is used, his covenant name, his, his intimate name that's used with his people is used in that section. And by the way, variety spice of life, right? But it's also interesting, we'll talk about this a little bit more when we get to things like Genesis 6, Genesis 7 and 8. When you read the ancient Near Eastern version, Noah's Ark, I think I mentioned this already, Noah's Ark is a box. Boxes don't float. It's a giant cube like a Borg ship. Second Star Trek reference in like six years of preaching and in one sermon, so go figure what else I can do. That's what happens when you don't work on your cultural references and, and craft them very carefully. You just say things like a Borg ship, and there it is. They're not trying to convey in the ancient Near East. They're not trying to convey. It isn't. They know it's a mess. Do you hear the dimensions of Noah's boat? There's a guy building one in Kentucky, believe it or not. Why you build one in Kentucky? I don't know why it's in Kentucky, but that's where they're building it, an ark. It's a big deal, right? Guess what shape it is? Shaped like a boat. <laughs> Shaped like a tanker, right? Because in the Noah story, he's conveying history. And people say, well, how can you? Moses couldn't. Moses wrote it. Moses wasn't even a real person. Well, where do you get that? We don't have any archaeological evidence of Moses. Well, that doesn't count because that's based on your faith beliefs. That's based on your worldview. Well, hey, here's the deal. You want me to come play on your court. I don't have a problem with Moses writing this thing for a number of reasons. Let's, let's start with this. In Genesis and the rest of the Torah, there are more Egyptian loanwords than anywhere else in the Bible. Egyptian, Egyptianologists have, have looked at it, and, and people have looked at it and said, there are more Egyptian loanwords in that section. There's always an extra cana uh, of reference. The person writing this thing is writing it as someone who's writing it, is going into this thing called cana, this promised land. The whole thing's written from this extra cana sensibility. Loanwords, extra cana. Oh, by the way, there are a few guys who have time to write the five Torah scrolls that make up the Pentateuch, or those first five books. What was Moses doing for 40 years? Numbers 9. Sometimes they camp for a month. This place they're wandering around is not huge. Right? Pillar of smoke moves, and they follow it. Pillar of smoke moves, they follow it. There. You ever been on a, uh, what do you call it, a grouse chase? We're just chasing Boy Scouts. Don't do it. It's horrible. Um, they, they send you on a, a wild goose chase is what it is. It's kind of what they're doing with God in the desert, except for he's right there. What does Moses have time to do? Write. He doesn't. Uh, what's funny is, is, is this is so unpopular. This is so unpopular. You read, uh, I'll, I'll give you one. You can go check out Gordon Wenham, British scholar. He will propose an author of the Pentateuch, those first five books, including Genesis 1 through 11, he'll propose an author all the way down, starting uh, as a post-exilic thing, 
They're out in Babylon, and they write it down. Okay. He says, or it could have been written during Solomon, or it could have been written during David, or it could have been written by someone in the time of Joshua, but not Moses. And I have to say, Gordy, if you're willing to go all the way to Joshua, why don't we go back to Moses? Well, for the same reason people at John Hop- Johns Hopkins aren't your favorite evangelical Christian. You say you think Moses wrote this, and then you say, get out of here, you little loon. Well, why? Well, because there's a faith commitment involved. There's a connection to the belief that Jesus is Messiah and has done what he said he's going to do and is doing what he says he does. But here's the deal. The reason for rejecting it is also a worldview, and it's also something that supplants our worldview. Uh, In addition to that, we look at sort of the the component, the natural history component. So that's the biblical study side there. Now you're ready to watch PBS. We have this natural history component. My concern is when we try and jam scientific theory on the text or, or, or just discard it because some guy has some theory about something. Right now, you can't imagine someone coming up with something other than the theory of evolution, a, a C option, because when Darwin cooked one up, no one had ever thought of anything like that ever before. And I'm not saying we don't have to deal with it, we don't have to look at it, we don't have to consider it. I'm just saying, what happens if we take this and we marry it to the theory of evolution. We marry it to natural history as we know it. And next week, some scientist comes out with that thing that pulls the linchpin on that last thing. And we got so busy trying to make this thing fit because here's something that none of those people think. They don't think that Genesis 3 happened. So their whole view of how everything happened is, A, based on the idea that everything's operating the same way right now as it always has. And B, that there was no fall. There was no everything falling apart. Okay? And, and so I think when we get to a text like Genesis 1 through 11, as, as Christians, we end up doing one of three things. We completely discount it. We say, meh. And honestly, um, you might not be reading these guys, but there are guys who call themselves evangelical Christians, publishing popular books. They're saying Genesis 1 through 11, meh. Meh. There's a real human component to the scriptures. Just like Jesus incarnated as fully human, fully divine, the scriptures have some divine and they have some human, blah, 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 blah. That's not in the Bible, by the way. That's not how we understand scripture. That's not an evangelical approach to the scripture at all. That's not a biblical uh, approach to scripture. And so we can just discount it. Or we go from what we know or what we see on PBS or whatever, and we take that and we try and cram that onto the text. The third option, which is what I think we should be doing, is starting with the text and understanding our world, doing, yes, our science. We're not afraid of science. We're not afraid of science experiments. We're not afraid of ideas, and we're not afraid to have the conversation. What's this guy open? We, we approach our world from the text to life, not what we're hearing in culture and hearing from another worldview and taking that and putting it on the text. Every worldview is subversive, right? Agreed? So if every worldview is subversive, we need to be careful how we take this worldview that rejects God, rejects his word, rejects the gospel, rejects it all, and then try and retrofit that onto the text. We need to be very careful as we move from point A to point B. We need to start with the text and move out from the text. This is happening across what we'll call interpretation or hermeneutics. It's happening everywhere. But we start with the text and we move out. And because we believe the text, we're not afraid, again, to have the conversation. I'm not afraid to have the conversation. I'll have the conversation all day long. I'm not scared. Now, why is this so important? I'm going to Luke chapter 24. That very day, two of them, these are disciples, not apostles, but disciples. That very day, two of them, and then 24 and 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking to each other about all these things that had happened. That's the death and uh, possible resurrection, as far as they're concerned, of Jesus Christ at this point in time. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him, and he said to them, 
what is this conversation you are holding with each other as you walk? As they stood still, looking sad, then one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? He knows, by the way, he was there. <coughs> Excuse me. And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word uh, before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death, crucifying him, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some of the women of our company amazed us when they were at the tomb early in the morning, and they did not find his body. Just as an aside, if you're willing to say that a man rose from the dead, why would, be sh why would we, we be shy in saying, and God made everything? Just asking. They came back to us saying that they'd even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women said. Uh, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, of slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. What is not what it, uh, was it not necessary that Christ, that's Messiah, should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with what? Moses. Moses. Why? Because he wrote the Pentateuch. That's why. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. This will be particularly important in Genesis 3. But uh, not only Genesis 3. Not only that, but if you're in John chapter 1, verse 1, we read this this morning. In the beginning was the word. Uh, this is the exact phrasing in Genesis 1-1 in the Greek Bible. The Greek in Genesis 1-1 and in John 1-1 are exactly the same. What does John think about Jesus? Well, he thinks this. In the beginning was the Word. Does that sound anything like we read this morning? And the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Our sin is so massive, and the gap that we have built between ourselves and God and the darkness we have made ourselves in God's good earth means that we need God in all His glory and thus so kind of power to come and save us. There was a man sent from God, his name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. Sovereign, sovereign being, God, sent his son. The one who made everything sent his son to save us. This is, this is so important, right? The worldview, the narrative identity of second temple or Hellenistic uh, people, people who are living in the time of Jesus, is that God made absolutely everything. That's their view. And these guys, who believe God made absolutely everything, were able to look at this guy, Jesus, and with confidence say, and this is the one who made everything. The one who made everything came to save us. Genesis and the Gospel. <laughs> God made everything good. That's clear from, from Genesis 1. God made everything good. And as we'll see in chapter 3, unfortunately, every time I read Genesis 3, I'm like, oh, don't do it. They never, ever listened. We broke it. Adam broke it. Our first father, Adam, broke it. He broke everything. Everything he broke. And yet God made a promise to send a new Adam, a better Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, to save. 
God, this one who made everything, set aside his divine rights and took on human flesh. So the word, the verbal fiat, the God who made, the one who did the verbal fiat, the one who made, came into this broken, broken mess that we have made for ourselves in our rebellion and our sin against a holy God and died in the midst of that mess to cleanse us from our sins to make us whole. Of course, this also gives us this picture. His resurrection is the beginning of what's going to happen. The new heavens, words, new heavens, new earth. Whatever we can say about the future in Christ is that it's good, that it's very good. Whatever we can say about that time that is coming, that time that is at hand, is that it's good. Whoever tears wipe from every eye. There is no sickness. There is no death. There is no more destruction. It is restored. And somehow, I think from Romans, both Romans 8 and the picture we get in the book of Revelation, somehow, not only is all the stuff that was supposed to happen, they're given, the humans are given dominion and to, to rule and to create and to do these things and build this wonderful godly culture and this wonderful godly society, all those things are ultimately done in Christ. And we get to inherit it. We get to receive it. And we do nothing to earn it. This is the gospel. Don't, don't think Genesis 1 doesn't have the shouts of what the gospel is in it. So this is so important for us. What's your lens? What's your worldview? What's your hermeneutic? How do you understand the world? Because okay. if you're taking the stuff of the world and trying to retrofit it and jam it on the text, I'm not saying there's not even stuff you say, look, says this here, and look, look at that. I'm not saying we, we don't do science. I'm not saying we don't do natural history. I'm saying are we doing it faithfully? And also, I mean, if you're willing to start saying things like, well, maybe when God made everything, it was like this, and we start retrofitting, why don't we just take it the next step? God made absolutely everything. Is that what is etched on the narrative of history as you understand it? It must be. There's, there's a variety. There's a swing in Bible-believing Christians, what we think about these things. But man, I tell you what. Let us not look down on those who would read the text and faithfully say, I think it happened in six days. Well, why? <clears throat> that's why I mean, this, is, this is my own walk with this thing especially as I studied the text more and more and dug more and more into the Hebrew the more I would say well I don't know kind of whatever I don't know and the more I looked at it and looked at it and looked at it and looked at it and said I think what Moses is trying to say is that God made everything in six days and he rested on the seventh that's what I think it says I'm a biblical creationist you can be a creationist, but unless it starts from the text, unless it starts from the text, let's be careful about the affixed biblical. And there, there are reasonable, and I would even say biblical views that are other than that one. You can approach this and you can look at it and you can be faithful to this thing. But the thing that I continue to be struck by is the plain meaning of this text. If you had asked Moses, so, Mose, <laughs> do you think that, that morning-evening thing, what do you think that is? Like, you know, like a gap, like a, a billion years or something where God's doing something? What? I don't know. We don't, just even to be clear, we don't hold that you have to have a seven-day view to be a member of this church. But I tell you what, the more I look at this text, the more I'm like, yeah. There's other options, but the best one continues to be that God made everything, and we broke it. And the way he made it is outlined here. Now, I say all this to say we must be so careful not to let a worldview that's not based in this reality subvert our own, displace our understanding of what the Bible is and what the Bible does and what the Bible is saying. Yeah, this is difficult stuff. This is 2015. This ain't 1750. Right? 
this is not a weird sermon in 1550 other than I don't speak Latin, right? Well, if I'm a Lutheran, I'm speaking German, which would also be weird because I don't speak German, right? It's, this isn't weird. And I'm not saying we need to go back to 1550. There's, not, there's a lot of things I'm not saying here. What I'm saying in the midst of the cultural milieu in which we live, I'm going to go with the word. I'm going to go with Jesus. I'm going to go with Moses. And I'm going to start from the text and work my way out. And the more I start with the text and work my way out, the more I say, that sounds like six days to me. Seven, if you count the day he rested. We always say seven. But he rested on that day. He didn't do anything that day. Anyways. It's also so important for us as we understand our place in this history. Right? We have weird conversations around my dinner table, as you might imagine if you've ever met my children or been at my house, or had dinner with us for that matter. And my three-year-old is fascinated with this idea. Somewhere he picked up the idea that this story that we're in, this history, that God made everything, he broke it, he promised to fix it, and he came to fix it, and it's going to get fixed. So I feel it. Well, but whose story is it? Well, son, it's your story. What do you mean it's my story? That part between redemption and restoration, that part between uh, he came to fix everything, he's going to fix everything, it came between the now and the not yet, that's where we are. And we're the church. And we're on this timeline. And so this is who we actually understand ourselves to be, where we understand ourselves to live in the history of everything. That's our lens. This is where we understand ourselves to be. Not in some undetermined, uh, random sequence of events. We're, we're going somewhere, and we came from somewhere, and it's all through the cross of Jesus Christ. If you don't know Jesus, if you don't know Jesus, you need to know that he is God in you absolutely to complete you. You say, I'm not so sure about this stuff. I'm kicking the tires. Well, kick the tires. Hang out with us. Kick the tires some more. What you need to understand is that the creator who created creation in all his hugeness, in all his bigness, not only knows every way you have sinned and wronged him and others, but this huge and wonderful God came into human history and died for your sin so that you could be right with him. And he's the only one powerful enough to do those things because this God in his infinite hugeness shows us that, man, that sin against him and others is infinite in its hugeness. And we need that infinitely huge God to come and die in our place to save us from our sin. And he did. There's nothing you can do. What do you have to offer the God who made everything? Nothing. What does he offer you? Absolutely everything. If you're a Christian, and you're struggling in here. And you're trying to figure out this space between, you know, your 10th grade science textbook, the scriptures covered in iron, and your text. And, you know, and you're in here. Uh, I think it's a good time to say, what is informing how we receive and understand anything? And keep kicking the tires. Keep talking. Keep asking. Keep studying. Keep looking. And, 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 if, and if you do know, and this is solid for you, and, and you just understand that, yeah, the creator created creation, does your life reflect that? Does, does your life reflect a, a riskiness and a radicalness for Jesus Christ, knowing that, that he who made everything has you? Uh, are you telling people this good news? God made everything good. Bad news is we broke it, but the good news is he's coming to fix it. Because if we can cast any fear or any anxiety on anyone, it's God. And if the God who made the heavens and the earth has you in his hand, he has you and he will empower you to live for his glory as he is restoring everything and putting it back the way it's supposed to be. In a moment, we're going to transition to communion. We do this every week, and we do this in a remembrance of the Lord Jesus Christ, the creator of everything who took on human form to die in our place for our sins. And so, so we take this cup. We've got gluten-free on the far side, regular bread in the middle, uh, wine and 
to according to your conscience on the side and the best for the offering of the nation. When we do this, we do this in remembrance. We do this as a public proclamation that we know God who came as Messiah, Jesus Christ, to die for our sins, to make us alive and alive forever with him who's going to put the world back the way it's supposed to be. And so we do as the scriptures encourage us. We consider our sin. We consider uh, how we have strayed from this wonderful and loving God and we repent. We, that means we turn from our sin and we turn to Jesus. And when we do this, we, go, we celebrate. There's a lot to celebrate. We know God who made everything. And so we're going to celebrate. We're going to sing. And we're going to worship this God that's so worthy of our worship. So I will pray for us and when you're ready, you can come up and Jesus, I just pray that we would be shocked anew at the reality that in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. I pray we'd be in awe afresh of the reality that you just spoke everything into existence and that that existence comes into existence however you want it to. That we would adore you and worship you as the creator of all things, as the redeemer and the forgiver of our sins, and as the one who has promised to fix the thing that we broke. You made it good, we broke it. You sent your son, Jesus, to fix it. Help us to worship, help us to know, help us to share, help us to love, and help us just to see you, Jesus, for who you are. I pray these things for your glory and for our joy in your name, Jesus Christ, amen.